Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women, ages 70 to 100 plus, who shatter the myth that women become irrelevant as we age. We appreciate your support. Join the Aging Reimagined circle at womenover70.com and promote your book in Books by Women and invite us to speak to your organization. We're so pleased to welcome to our studio today, Karen Kalish, who was recommended to us by Judy Schindler, an early podcast guest. Karen grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and moved to Washington, D.C. right after college. She was a school teacher for six years, four at Sidwell Friends, where the Obama and other presidents' kids went, then consumer activist, which led to being an on-air reporter at CBS in Washington, ABC in Chicago, and Entertainment Tonight in DC. After 12 years on the air, she decided to teach people how to talk to the media without putting their feet in their mouth, and then started her first nonprofit along with the business. 19 hours, 19 hour days, seven days a week, led Karen to apply to the Harvard Kennedy School, where she got a degree in public policy at the age of 55. A passionate consumer advocate, she calls herself a serial social entrepreneur, described as someone who starts things for the good of the community and does it over and over again. When she sees a problem, she rolls up her sleeves, grabs as many allies as she can, and gets to work. The main issues she focuses on are literacy, closing the academic opportunity and achievement gaps, and ending discrimination. Karen has started three nonprofit organizations and one program, and in her own words, is lucky enough to have a donor advised fund since 2000. Karen Kalish, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you. That says it everything for me. I'm over 70, and I'm always reimagining myself and actually every day. Okay. I love the name of your program. Thank you. Good for you. That's what we want. So let's begin our conversation with your uh, teacher home visit, which is one of the nonprofits you started because you believe America's K-12 education system is in crisis. Well, it's actually not so much the education system, which is in crisis. There is no question about that. But even earlier, a child, many of our, too many of our children are coming to school the very first day, already one and two years behind. And why? Because there is little to no reading, talking, playing, or singing in their homes from birth. And why is that? Because many of their parents didn't have anybody to read and talk and play with sing, and sing with them. So they don't know how important it is. And Many of them have two and three jobs and they're trying to keep food on the table and the lights on and the rent paid. And we've had teachers tell us that parents have said to them, I get home at two o'clock in the morning from my third job. You really want me to wake my child up and read to him then? And of course we don't, but we need to know that their child is not getting the uh, stimulation intellectual at home that they need to be successful in school. So the education system is one thing that needs a lot of attention, including teachers who are paid a lot more than they're paid and curriculums that don't change every two years. But we really concentrate on 
the home-school relationship, the teacher-parent relationship, and having them on the same page. So what, what does that look like, Karen? Describe it. Well, it looks like um, it looks like teachers in pairs going to the homes of their struggling students. Now, we're only in the schools that do have struggling students. They're Title I schools, which is a, a denomination for schools across the country that have kids below the poverty level and who are behind. So it, it, we train the teachers how to go into a home. Many of them, 85% of the teachers in America are white and 85% of the teachers in America are women. And many of them have never been in the homes of their struggling students. And there's some sort of unwritten rules and, and ways to be. So for example, the of the pair, one of them we hope, we urge, looks like the family on the other side of the screen door. And it has to do with race. Everything in America has to do with race. And so we want one of the two people, and it can be the gym teacher, it can be the art teacher. That's even better than having two classroom teachers to have the other teachers involved too, the social worker, et cetera. And we train them on what to do during a home visit and how to make it as effective as possible. Starting that relationship, building trust, that is key, trust and relationship building. And then get to a place where we can talk to mom, dad, grandma about reading, talking, playing, singing. But we can't be walking in there the very first day saying, you got to be reading to your kids more. I don't even have to tell you what their response would be to that. So build the trust, build the relationship and get mom, dad, grandma to start reading, talking. They don't, many of them don't know to be walking down the street and saying to their kids, how many blue houses do you see? How many red cars do you see? How many steps do you think until we get to the corner? And these simple questions that many moms and dads do, but our moms, many of them don't know how to do that. So we really want to train the teachers to be working with mom, dad, grandma. So I have a couple of questions about that. Pardon me? I have a couple of questions about that. Ooh, let's go. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, we know that teachers are terribly stressed. And their time, they feel, is is all used up in many cases. And and so, I, so two things. One, how do you get teachers to buy into this and spend time outside of the classroom doing going to homes? And two, how do you fund such a such a such a project? Well, first of all, um, it's mandated. It's a voluntary. So when we go to schools, we start with the superintendent. If he or she likes it, then we talk to the principals. And if the principals like it, then they have us come talk to the faculty. And then we'll see which faculty sign up. We really don't want to go unless we have at least half the faculty say, yes, we will do this. Mm -hmm. Because we want to make an impact. That is crucial to make an impact and move the needle for these kids. And with two or three teachers visiting two or three kids, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So we, there's all these steps before we start. Um, we make we um teachers tell us that when they do this it makes their life easier so the second year we're in a school often more teachers will do it the second year because they were very skittish about it but then when they hear their teachers say it made their life easier their phone calls got returned uh materials were seen in the book bag rather than getting to the bottom of it no one ever sees them and the children were doing better that more teachers would do it 
So it's a voluntary program. We pay them. We pay them $35 for every visit, and that's two people on the visit. And we have the school system pay one of the two, and we pay the other one. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to the money in one second. So they do get paid for their time because this is over and above the call of duty, but it's not enough to put an addition on their house or anything. It may mean keep them from getting a second job, actually. Mm-hmm. So we pay them to do it, and they report back that it changed the child, it changed the teacher, it changed the parents, and that the kids are doing better. And it makes their life easier. So it's not a hard sell. Initially, it's a hard sell to some. Others are, I've been waiting for you. I am so excited. I've been wanting to go to their house, and I didn't know what I was going to say or what not to say. I've been waiting for you. So it's a lot of different reactions. Mm-hmm. As for the money, I love asking for money for this program. I look on it as an opportunity, giving someone an opportunity to play a part in something that is so important in this country, and that's our children. And so I fundraise all the time, including the driveway down the street and over the peas at the grocery store and letters and making calls on companies, et cetera. So why raise money for this? The budget this year is 1.18 million and we've got, we're, we're doing great. We're, we've, it, we don't have it all in the bank yet, but we're ahead of ourselves because people realize how important it is. So we get money from corporations, from family foundations and from individuals. We have no government money and we have no money from the United Way. And if schools are interested in participating in this program, how do they find you? Uh, HomeWorks, the Teacher Home Visit Program, or our website is teacherhomevisit.org. And we would, I say we, but I have to say that I'm retired and I like the word rewired better. <laughs> but um, so I, we hired an, another person to be my number two a year and a half ago. And she was so marvelous. And I was so ready to go that it was perfect. And she came in and she's the new CEO. So we have a website and we have a CEO who loves to talk to people locally and nationally. It's really an important program in St. Louis or the Missouri, actually, in Illinois, we're the only ones doing it. But there are other programs around the country. So the other thing is that the, the, the teachers love it. The kids love it. They especially elementary. When are you coming to my house? When are you coming to my house? They are just so excited to have their teacher. And the parents realize, you know, I thought you were going to come and look under the bed and look in my refrigerator and see what kind of mom I was. No way. You just want to help us. And when that happens, it just the 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 misconceptions go up in smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like a terrific program. So you you have other nonprofits as well. You want to tell us? Well, I, I have to say that as I look back on my life, I just never want to say no to something or to I'm, I've got a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. If you've read that book by yes. um, Carol, uh, Carol Dweck about mind called mindset. And <clears throat> as long I'll try anything that doesn't hurt anybody else. And if I see something that needs to be done. I'm the one that says, let's just do it rather than someone will do it, or mm-hmm. I hope someone will do it. So when I saw certain things that needed to be done, or I heard about something and said, oh, I mean, I saw a program on TV and it, on one of those morning talk shows in the early 90s and said, I got to start that in St. Louis. I mean, in Washington, I was in Philadelphia. So I went to Philadelphia the following week and learned everything and said, 
can I start this in Washington? Yes. Can I use your name and put DC on the end? Yes. And so we started it. I mean, I just don't let grass grow under my feet. So so I'm, I'm very, I'm very lucky that way. So what are these other nonprofits? Well, the first one was um, was actually that program. It's called it's called Operation Understanding DC. Uh-huh. It was a program in Philadelphia that's no longer there, unfortunately, called Operation Understanding. And it was a program in the early 90s for black and Jewish high school students for them to come together and learn about their own and each other's race, religion, culture, and history. And it was a time before 9-11 that we too, we black, black people and we Jewish people, were really the two most hated in this country, one for our religion and one for our skin color. And there have been so many times in history where Blacks and Jews had come together, especially on Capitol Hill, and voting together and supporting each other, that there were people in Philadelphia who thought it'd be great to bring the next generation together so they would learn about their own and each other's race, religion, culture, and history. And so I started in in, uh, Washington. I made every mistake possible. Oh, my gosh. But failure is the best teacher. I love and hate, but I love mostly failure because that's when we learn. So rather than being afraid of it or being embarrassed by it, I embrace it and absolutely love failure. So even though I did some things that weren't so great in that first nonprofit because I had no idea what I was doing, (laughs) we all learned it's still going. And when I started the next one, which was in St. Louis, I made different mistakes and not quite as many. Mm-hmm. So, and that's still going to, that's in its 18th year. And yeah. then the other program, the program I started, which is not a nonprofit, came about because I went on a police ride along. I went in a police car, it was offered. And, you know, I'll try anything. So it was going in a police car and it was Washington, DC. I also did it in St. Louis. And both times I went in the most dangerous part of DC and St. Louis, Saturday night, seven to midnight. If I'm gonna do it, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, why do something at two o'clock on the Tuesday afternoon? So I in Washington, oh my gosh, I wasn't even allowed out of the car because it was so dangerous, rapes, murders, knives, guns. Oh my gosh, what, a, what an education. But in St. Louis, even though we are the most dangerous city right now with more oh, killings no. and violence per capita than any other city in the United States, the night I went on a Saturday night, it, my night was boring, <laughs> so boring that I made an appointment with the police chief, who I did not know, and said, I want to put all the police in the schools on a regular basis, reading and writing with kids, because if, if they're not reading and writing, you're going to get them, and I don't want you to have them. And the police chief said, well, you can't have the police. They need to be on the street, but you can have all the recruits. Well, I knew nothing about police or recruits, but I went down, met the head of the department. And I started a little program out of nothing called Books and Badges. And I, for 18 years, I trained every recruit how to be a reading partner with a kid who needed help for 45 <laughs> minutes. And about two thirds of the cops liked it. And, two, and one third were, what is going on? I signed up to shoot guns and arrest people. What am I doing with this second grader? And they probably, just between you and me, didn't, and everybody listening, uh, wouldn't have made very good cops anyway, but that wasn't, I had no voice in that. So that's called Books and Badges, and that went on for 18 years. And then I started the uh, teen program in St. Oh, no, then I started Homeworks. And that came because I was in California at a training 
for community organizing, which started in Chicago with Saul Alinsky in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And I was at a training for community organizing. And there was a nun, Sister Pearl Caesar, who talked about a program in Austin and in San Antonio, where the p- teachers were going to the homes of their students and getting great results. And I just got one of those, I got to do this moment and came back to St. Louis. And I, then I went to Texas and I talked to the parents, went to San Antonio, went to Austin, talked to the parents, talked to the kids, talked to the teachers. I got to do this. And they were warning me, you got to go to the union first because they could get in your way, the teacher's union. So my first appointment was a teacher's union. And I explained everything. And she looked at me and she said, let me get this straight. You're paying them and it's voluntary. Yeah, that's true. Go and be well. And I never had a problem with the union ever. They're just, they love it. So that was homeworks. And now I'm on my next chapter or my rewirement. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I do know that I'm moving across the country at 76 years old to Seattle. That is Meshuggah, and that's a Jewish word for crazy. And why are you doing that, Karen? Well, I a year, a year and two months ago, I went to Mayo Clinic. There was nothing wrong. I had always wanted to go one place to get everything looked at. And I kiddingly say every bone and every boob. And I got the cleanest bill of health that I decided, A, that my exercising and training and all that was working. And B, I had another chapter. Mm -hmm. And I live in a really red, red, red state Mm -hmm. and a racist city and state. And I don't want to stay here anymore. Mm -hmm. And why Seattle? I've got two of my five nephews there two favorite cousins, six longtime friends of 30 years or more. It's got water, it's got mountains, and it's a blue state. (laughs) That's why. Seems like a winner to me. I hope it's scary and exciting. (laughs) And I'm interested in um, that your move, you started Kalish Communications to teach clients how to talk to the media. Yes. Do you still do you still have that that uh, that? I don't have I don't know. I mean, the short answer is no. The long answer is if someone who I know well says, you know, I got to talk to the media, I'll do it. They just come over. I'll ask them questions and they have to fill out a form and stuff about what they're talking about. And and I'll do it. And I'm really good at it. But it, it doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. I'm really about social problems and social issues. and. Um, so I'll do it because I'm good at it. But no, I don't still have Kalish Communications. When we talk, you you mentioned to me a panel that you were on or are going to be on. Well, there's, something, there's something called Renaissance Weekend that was started in 1980 by Bill and Hillary Clinton and their friends. And they would get together over New Year's and talk issues. And this Renaissance Weekend grew and grew and grew. It's now 42 years old and they have not only New Year's, they meet in Charleston, 1,300 people every year, but they also have smaller ones. And I've been going to the Renaissance Weekend for about 13, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And you tell them what you're good at. They always put me on a panel on uh, philanthropy. They put me on one on education. They put me on one speaking in public. And one year, they gave me one that was titled on a panel with about five other people, Can You Be Happy As You Age? And I looked at it and said, I'm not doing this. And then I thought, mm-hmm. wait a minute. 
I'm aged, and I'm usually in a good mood. Being glasses always have full. Uh, to me, it's a well. I'll tell you about that in a second. So, so I said, okay, I'll do it. But I had to think, what? Why am I? Why am I in a good mood? Why? Why am I happy at seventy six when a lot of people aren't? And so I came up with five, and then I added more and added more. And so I don't know how many I have now, maybe seven or ten. But it was really an interesting um, exercise to think about why you'd be happy at this age because the the end is closer than it's ever been before. And so I'll share with you what what I, what what I think is so important for me anyway. And so number one is relationships. Um, and I say family and friends because there are some people who don't have great families. They're fighting all the time or whatever, but they have friends and they built their family from their friends. Mm -hmm. So relationships, people that you love and love you, doesn't have to be your family or it could be, but relationships are just number one for me and having, you know, wonderful friends and, and, and family too. But you need to, you need to get rid of the toxic people in your life. And that's hard for a lot of people to do. And I guess to be a friend, you know, I have to know how to be a friend too. So, so number two is purpose. And that's been for me, the, the kids, the, the struggling kids in school and, and all the things you mentioned at the beginning, Gail, but I think having a purpose, a reason to get up in the morning, not just to play tennis or not just to go shopping or what am I going to do today, but a real a purpose to of why, I mean, it could be even getting in shape. It could be reading with the kid. It does, there's nothing that says what it has to be, but something out of yourself, I think. So I think purpose is really important. Mm -hmm. Number three is a biggie for me is choice. And choice to me is, and I'll use a little analogy. When you go to the doctor and she hits your right below your knee and your leg pops up, you have no control over that. It, it pops up. But the second second, you do have a choice, whether you keep it up or put it down or go to the left or the right or go dancing or whatever. And so we don't control what happens to us, illnesses, deaths, losing jobs. I mean, really horrible things. But we do control how we react to those things. And we can either stay down, stay in a bad mood, blame other people or not. And I choose not. Now, I have to put right out there. I am so lucky. I am healthy, healthy, healthy. Oh, my gosh, am I healthy? And I'm not going to miss a meal. So everything else to me is gravy. And so it's very easy for me to say it's a choice because I've never been in one of those situations that are just so difficult. But mm -hmm. right now I can say, I always choose the, the, the positive, the glass being half full. And I change all my got to's to get to's. So mm -hmm. think about that a second. I got to go to the store. No, I get to go to the store. I got to go to the, get a colonoscopy. No, I get to get a colonoscopy. <laughs> so if you change your got to's to get to's, it really changes your whole way of looking at things. Yeah. So that to me is part of choice to, to, to change your got to's to get to's. <laughs> and then the next one to me is gratitude. I, it's just so important of what we're grateful for. And it's more than just saying thank you. Although that is really important. We can't thank people enough. I mean, whatever. Little, I tell little kids, thank their mom for making their lunch. And they look at me nuts. But the, anything that does, the, when the person takes the plate away from where you're sitting at a luncheon, thank you. Or they put the plate in front of you. Thank you. I mean, you just, 
can't thank enough, but it's more than saying thank you. It's thinking about little things that you're grateful for and big things, maybe even journaling what you're grateful for. As I go off and sleep at night, what am I grateful for today? And I also thank you for another healthy day. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure about the God part. I probably, I'm either agnostic or, but um, I just have to acknowledge another healthy day. So that gratitude, I think it's just that attitude of gratitude is important. Mm -hmm. And then giving, I, I think giving, giving your time, giving yourself, giving your expertise, giving money, giving clothes. I mean, giving, I, I think we get more when we give than, than we do give when we give. <laughs> so I, I just, those, those random acts of kindness and I, that giving, giving is really an important thing. And I have this sort of, I, I do, I have to admit, and I'm trying to break myself, but I admit I like shopping. So my way to handle that is whatever I buy for myself, I donate that amount of money the following week and I call it guilt-free shopping. <laughs> I had to find a way to, to, to work that in. I think you can patent that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then exercise. I think it's so important. I try to walk 11,000 steps a day and only because it's, it's arbitrary, but everyone's doing 10,000. I'm doing 11,000. Sounds and like sometimes it. it's 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. And sometimes it's only four, I have to admit. But I think exercise uh, doing lifting weights, getting massage. I think that is really, really important to get to, to do that, to move around. I mean, just move your body around. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is sense of humor. I love to laugh. I love to make other people laugh. I am a great joke teller. And I just think of sense of humor is really, really great. So I'll, I'll just stop there with that. And the last one is curiosity. And I, that also, I think, keeps us really alive of being curious and not just a ho-hum, but curious about people, curious about things to learn, taking classes, uh, anything that sparks your, you know, your, your brain firing about something that you don't know anything about. If we just only keep reading the stuff we know about, we're not going to grow. If we're only always with the people that we know. I, when I go into a party, for example, I never, well, I can't, shouldn't say never, rarely talk to people I know. I make a beeline for every single person I don't know. In, ca in fact, I have been having parties for the last 12 years for 23 to 35-year-olds, college graduates. I have 1,200 on my list, typically 75 to 100 come for dinner. And it's, I mean, pizza, this is nothing fancy, but the people who come are not allowed to talk to anyone they already know. And I know who knows who. So if I see them together, I, I make a beeline and, you know, you guys, you know, the rules because it's written in the invitation. And if it happens a second time, take them off my list and they never get asked again. <laughs> I want people to meet other people and broaden. And for St. Louis, we need to have these young people stay here and they're not, they're leaving. So I want them to know each other. Well, you'll definitely be able to put that into practice in Seattle. <laughs> oh, I hope so. I hope I get to meet 1200 young people. Yes. We'll want to meet each other, but there are a lot of young people there. I will know. I do know that. <laughs> well, time goes very quickly, and uh, this has been fabulous. You're, you're very inspiring, Karen. Do you have any any final words for well, our listeners? I want to go. I want to go. Two things. Number one, in my introduction, you said that I will pick as many allies as possible, mm -hmm. and I I learned actually. 
uh, at Harvard because I had started the first nonprofit alone, basically. And that was a huge mistake. And so I um, learned that you can never do anything well alone, starting something like starting a program or something. Mm -hmm. And so you always need to have partners, allies, collaborators when you are starting, when someone is starting something. You can have the greatest idea in the world, but if you don't have partners to do it with you, to bounce ideas off of, it's not going to make it. So I tell young people that all the time. They may have, even older people who have this, oh, my great idea, great idea, but they only want to do it alone. Mm. And I always admonish them and say, no, you must get people to do this with you or you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. So I can't emphasize that part enough. And then the other area of interest I have right now is philanthropy. Because I notice that, I mean, guess I think you, buy, you guys have too. If we look around this country, and all the problems that we have, some of them could be solved by philanthropy, but they're not. We still have all these diseases. We still have kids not doing well in school. And so what's the deal? What is going on? And one of the deals is that people are not good stewards of their own and other people's money. What does that mean? Someone comes to them with what sounds like a good idea, and the person who has a little bit of money says, oh, that's like a good, that sounds like a good idea. Here's some money without looking into if not only is it a good idea, but can it be done? And are you going to measure what you're doing and learn and do more of what you're doing right and do less of what you're doing wrong that you will learn if you are measuring? And so I've had this whole program now, and I've given several talks on this on philanthropy. And the first half of the talk is for people who give, and it's $5 or 5 million or anything in between, but what did, how do they become good stewards? When someone has an idea, do you ask to see the board and see who's on the board? And does the board look like the community or is it a bunch of white men? Mm-hmm. Does it look like the area or the problem that you're trying to solve? Number two, does, does well, number, number one, still with the board, does everybody donate on the board? If not, they don't need to be on the board. That's one of the things the board does is raise money and they have to give their own. And for me, it's give and get or get off. Some people said give or get. Uh, uh-uh. I say give on your own wallet, get, get your friends to give to and your colleagues and your relatives or get off the board. Mm-hmm. So the board, looking at the board is really important. Number two, look at the staff. Are they the right people in the right seats on the bus to use a phrase from Jim Collins? Or did you just give them a job because they were breathing? So having the right people running it, and also they should look like the community. We can't have a bunch of white people running everything in this country anymore, and we should never have in the first place. So looking at the staff, number three, is this a program, your idea, that will move the needle? And you will be able to prove that or just or not. There's a bunch of numbers, how many books you gave out or how many shots you gave or how many uh, meals you served. I mean, that. so what? We need the so what. And four, financially healthy and sustainable. So I usually do not give to startups. I want to see them get going a little bit. I'll give like in the third or fourth year if they are growing and have done all these things. But I want to see this in place. So the the funding and you don't, if they have the same amount of money now that they had five years ago, they are not growing. You do not want, not a good investment. You need to be growing every single year. It doesn't mean you have to go all over the United States 
but you have to be growing your programs. You can go deeper. There's all kinds of ways to grow. And it's not necessarily all over the country, but the funding has to be growing or you're going backwards. Mm-hmm. And you also want a culture that, that uh, values learning. You want the whole board and the whole staff to really understand the problem that this nonprofit is trying to solve. And six and seven have to do with data, collecting data, but from the outside, they have to get a, a company or a professor at a university who has students who need to do evaluation, that won't cost you a thing, to do the evaluation every single year and see if you're on the right track. And the last one is partnerships and collaborations because you can't do it alone. And you need to be partnering and collaborating with other organizations because no one nonprofit can solve the problem you're trying to solve alone. So I'm really big on this being good stewards because we have 1.5 million nonprofits in this United States. Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. And last year, the Americans who are so generous gave 441 billion with a B dollars to these 1.5 million. And why are we still in such a pickle? <laughs> in, in Illinois and Missouri alone, there are 75,000 nonprofits. That is ridiculous. So I don't want to go on my rant, <laughs> but I, I'm, I really want people to be thinking whether they're giving five or five million, being thinking much more carefully about where those dollars are going to bring about the difference. Right. And my legacy, I'll just I'll end with my legacy. I, I made this up and I already gave it to the people putting the stone together because I got everything, everything ready for me when when, you know, in, in 25 years. But my stone is going to say. Here lies Karen under the only stone she left unturned. (laughs) That's a great way to end. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Karen. We appreciate it. So no more questions, Catherine or or Gail? Well, uh, I just, I want to thank you so much, Karen. This has just been a wonderful illustration of what it it means to be a serial social entrepreneur. And um, so I think our listeners are going to be very, very, uh, happy to hear to hear you. Thank um, you. Yeah, so thank you. So, and listeners, subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Visit womenover70.com to access all of our episodes and easily search by name or category. Join us on the first Tuesday of each month to enjoy programming beyond the podcast hosted by Aging Reimagined Circle. And we'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.